I've entitled my thoughts this morning, A Tale of Two Types of Men, and this will be the conclusion of our series together through the book of Titus. I have very much enjoyed going through the book of Titus with you. I hope that you have enjoyed this series that we've undertaken over the past couple of months at least together, maybe three months together. We put this on pause for Easter, the day that we remember and think a little more specifically about the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord. But we don't want to leave this book hanging without its conclusion. We want to finish this. And so today, if God is our helper, we will do just that, come to the conclusion of our study of this book together. I was not entirely sure how I wanted to approach the remaining portion of Scripture in the book of Titus. And so after a lot of praying over the past three weeks, the thought occurred to me, because what we have first in Titus chapter 3, the remaining portion of Scripture, verses 9 through 15, is a warning against those who are divisive. Paul would call them the heretics or a heretic. And then lastly, you have what Paul generally does at the end of one of his epistles, at the end of his writings. He commends several faithful men. And as I was meditating upon the latter portions of Titus chapter 3 during the week, I realized that it really was a perfect contrast one from the other. You have first in this context those who cause division And then lastly, you have those that are faithful, those that are commended, those who even would be willing to give their lives and health, their reputation simply for the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that were not in it for their own good or their own gain, but those that were in it for the glory of the Lord. And so I think that it's a perfect way to end this epistle together, contrasting these two types of people, these two types of individual that finds themselves in the church, first of all, those that are divisive, and then lastly, those that are commended, those that are faithful. We'll begin by reading the remainder of this book together, beginning in Titus chapter 3 and verse 9. As you turn to Titus 3, 9, I remind you, that the last time we were studying this together, we talked about the importance of good works. And so verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things that I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, but he's going to go into things that are not profitable unto us. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Vain there not meaning what we generally take it to mean. I looked in the mirror and I was very happy with what I saw. That day doesn't happen often anymore. But this isn't vain as in vanity, as in I like the way I look, but it's vain as in pointless, useless. There's no purpose, there's no profit in it. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. We won't comment on that in a moment, but Paul is going to spend some time there in the winter as he rests and perhaps refreshes himself. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them, and let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I'll add that grace be with you all is the salutation that Paul puts in every single one of his epistles. He ends, sometimes begins, all of his epistles with some variation of grace be with you, grace and peace be with you. To the ministers, he includes an extra word, the word mercy. And so to Titus, 
or to Timothy, he'll include words such as mercy as he introduces his writing to them or as he concludes his writing to them, to Timothy especially. But we stand in need as ministers is a great point of God's mercy, perhaps more than anyone else in the church, because we're the ones who have to share the pure word of God with you, and we are very much sinners as everyone else. Avoid foolish questions and genealogies, we begin in verse 9. These passages emphasize the importance of unity in the local church and among God's people by focusing on the negative, focusing on unrest and contentions in such a way as to discourage them and also to discourage the root, the source of contention within a church body. Now, we want to have peace with God's people abroad, but more importantly than that, we want to have peace in our church body. Peace within the local church is crucial to the survival of a church in any given location. And because we are all sinners, every single one of us, you might think, I I want to go to a church without sinners. If you're watching the live stream today, you might say, I want to go to a church with no sinners, so because there's always sinners in church, I'm just going to stay home and watch the live stream. Well, the only way there's a church without sinners is for everyone to leave, and then it ceases to be church. This building is a church building, but it is not the church. The church is made of people as lively stones, and every single stone in that wall of the temple of God is a sinner who has been made righteous through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because churches are made exclusively of sinners, we have the possibility and the potential of contention and division because any one of us in any moment can allow the flesh to overcome us. We can act in our flesh, in our Adam nature. We can do things or say things that are destructive to the peace of the church, and the church can find itself in disorder and disarray because of our behavior. Now, it is never the will of God for His churches to be divided. It is never the will of God for His churches to fight. It is never the will of God for His churches to have trouble. Trouble sometimes occurs. And we'll talk today about one particular individual, the heretic, as a hypothetical character, just as a generality. When a heretic is in a church... There has to be a little bit of discord to make the heretic leave because this is not peace at all costs. This is peace based upon the truth in obedience to God for the glory of Christ. I should have written that down. That sounded pretty good. This isn't peace at any cost, but we are to pursue peace in Christ We're all going the same direction. We're all looking to Christ. We're all trying to get closer to Christ. And as such, it doesn't matter how far apart you are, if you're focused on the same focal point in the distance, you're all going to be getting closer and closer together as you move towards the focal point. And so we need to look to Christ and move towards Christ. And as we do that, we become more Christ-like. We become more obedient. We take up our crosses and follow Him. We have better discernment of the world around us, proper judgment of the things that take place in the world, what to think, what to believe, how to behave, what we should find ourselves doing each and every day. As we do that, peace becomes easier and easier because we're all pursuing the same thing in the same way. The things that disrupt the peace in church are emphasized in verse 9. Now, much of these specific things were issues at hand in Paul's day. For instance, and we'll comment on this in a moment, genealogies. How many of you today argued about genealogy? A lot of us might not want to mention some of our genealogy. We just don't go there. How about... Strivings about the law. Anyone today encounter someone who was debating the law? I have occasionally, but not today. We might have a completely different set of issues that divide in today's time. Whatever those issues are that divide, if it's not a matter of principle, if it's not a matter of thus saith the word of the Lord, if it's not a matter of Christ, 
then those are things that are immaterial to us as we pursue the Lord together. Listen, we are a counterculture. When I was a little boy, the adults before me thought that we could transform this country into some sort of a Christian theocracy. The actual technical term is theonomy. And through doing that, we just take over as Christians politics, and the next thing you know, America is some sort of a new Israel. And there were people who believed that and used that terminology. But remember, we're a counterculture. We're not to be concerned with Washington as much as we're to be concerned with 641 Moontown Road. What is 641 Moontown Road? If you didn't know, that's where you are right now. We're to be more concerned with the people in this room and reaching out with the gospel and with the relief of the poor in our community than we are taken over, either in a metaphorical or maybe even sometimes a literal sense, Washington or Montgomery. We're a counterculture. And we say that, but we really don't mean it because we go right along with the culture on every single thing that takes place around us in the world. We're to be separate different. Now that's stepping on my toes. If it steps on yours, understand my feet are bruised before I ever thought about stepping on your shoes. So we're to be different. There are so many issues in the world today that cause contention that have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ, and they ought to never be things that divide us in the church, ever, under any circumstances. Avoid foolish questions, the first thing that Paul mentions. We often say, and we teach our children, that there's no such thing as a bad question. And in a sense, that's true if you're studying algebra. In a sense, that's true if you're studying history, if you're studying science. But there are questions in the church that are bad questions. We never question what the Word of God has said. We never question the divinity of Christ. We never question the finished work of salvation. We never question the fact that God the Father elected us before the world began, that the Son redeemed us upon the cross of Calvary, that the Spirit has quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, that Jesus rose from the grave and so He will raise us again in the last day with glorified bodies. There are things that we do not question. We don't question things that are biblical and true. There are questions in the world that are foolish. And we ought to shun foolish questions. Why do you know that? Because he says avoid foolish questions. Sometimes you have questions that might even be well-meaning that really we ought not even be thinking along the lines of or about. What are some of those questions? Let's go off script for a minute. Off the cuff. So let's say, as a Bible reader, I understand that God exists and that He is sovereign. We believe in the sovereignty of God here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. I know that God is the absolute final authority. He's the creator. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. And I know that nothing can be unless He at least has suffered it to be because He's sovereign. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Nothing happens that God says, you know, I really wish I could have done something about that. Even in Job, Satan, as he afflicts Job, could not do but what God suffered him to do. And you're talking about the most powerful being that wanders in this world in a spiritual sense outside of God himself. A being so powerful, even after his fall, in his authoritative position that in Jude, Jude says that Michael the archangel did not even rebuke him, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. That's a powerful creature. And we ought to do everything we can to avoid that entity. So we know that God is sovereign. Sometimes people say, well, God is sovereign. And yet at the same time, sin exists. Sin exists. Evil exists. Suffering exists. And they'll begin to reason Philosophically, if God is sovereign and sin exists, then sin must somehow please God and be a part of His purpose. And right there you have left what the Bible says and entered into philosophy into a foolish question that is destructive. There are questions 
that we don't have the answer to. Why did God permit sin? I don't know. Nor does anyone else, because the Bible doesn't say God chose to permit Adam and Eve to fall, to suffer them to fall for X, Y, Z purpose. I don't know the answer to that question. Now, you might be disappointed in that. I've got news for you. There are a lot of other questions I don't know the answers to. Is that hard to believe? My wife says, nope, not hard to believe at all. Y'all awake today? Hey. There are some questions that we simply need to avoid because we don't have the answers to them. And any time we leave what the Word of God has clearly said, what does the Word of God clearly say about God's relationship with sin? He hates it. He despises it. He never tempts men to do it. He is far above it. It cannot exist in His presence, and He will judge people eternally in hell because of it. Doesn't sound to me like He likes it very much, or that it's a part of His plan in the sense that He approves of it as a means to an end. And so when we come to questions like that, we simply say, I don't have the answers to that question. I don't have to have the answers to that question. The Lord knoweth. I don't know. Because it's philosophy. And philosophy, if one thing the New Testament is absolutely emphatic about, philosophy is very dangerous. Because philosophy is when we begin to try to answer these questions with human reasoning instead of what is clearly revealed in the Word of God. There are so many questions that people have asked through the millennia that we simply don't have the answers to. And the Bible calls these Foolish and unlearned questions. Now, returning to script. Genealogies. Why would that be an important thing to the first century Jew in particular? Their pedigree was everything. You know the prominence that you could have in society saying that I am an offspring of David himself? Imagine if you as an American were an offspring, a descendant of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. We just saw England over the, the UK over the past couple of weeks mourning someone who was in their royal family. How important is genealogy to them? Very important. But as far as the gospel of Christ, genealogies are absolutely irrelevant. We are not elected to salvation because three generations ago someone did something There is not a holy bloodline in the world that God elected the entire bloodline, leaving the other bloodline completely non-elect and unregenerate. There's a doctrine that teaches that in the world. And they look to Cain and Abel and then eventually Cain and Seth to say, see, this is the holy bloodline, this is the unholy bloodline. The biblical fact of the matter is God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue of Cain and of Seth. Now, You really want to throw a wrench in the gears of that school of thought? Ask about all the other children that Adam and Eve had. Okay, if Seth is the righteous line and Cain is the evil line, what about the hundreds of other kids that they had? Are they just neutral? Are they immaterial? Do they not matter? Adam and Eve had tons of children. We just know about the three because the story involved in it. Genealogies were very important to the Jewish Christian in that day, to the Jew in that day, and they're absolutely immaterial in the gospel. So we don't focus on things like that. This is telling us things we don't focus on. Contentions of any sort. Strivings about the law. It's rare that we have strivings about the law in this day and age. About a decade ago, I had some interactions with some folks that I love very much who had become convinced that God would have them to keep the Old Testament law to make him more pleased with them. The New Testament has two books in particular that confront that idea very pointedly, Galatians and Hebrews. As Christians, we do not have to keep the law. We do not keep the law. Why? Christ fulfilled the law to a jot and a tittle. Christ is my fulfillment of every law that God would have men to obey. And he kept the law to a jot and a tittle, so I don't. I was reading through Leviticus this past week. I'm sure I'm wearing mixed fabric. That was against the law. Do you have on mixed fabric today? 
Men folk, you're not allowed to round the corners of your head or round the corners of your beard. That means goatees were against the law. Mustaches were against the law. They probably should be anyway, but that's another story for another day. The haircut that so many men had about three years ago where they shave the sides of their head, leave some hair on top, and then maybe have a really long beard, that was against the law because the Gentiles wore their hair that way. Jewish men were not allowed. Some of you that were at a wedding last night ate shrimp. That's against the law. I had a pork tenderloin. That's against the law. Christ fulfilled the law so that we do not need to. If righteousness could have come by a law, then it would have come by a law, but it could not. And so God sent Christ to fulfill it. Christ is our righteousness. But they would strive about the law. You read Acts chapter 15. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. By the time the chapter concludes, the Pharisees are teaching the Christians, you've got to be circumcised and keep all the law to be saved. Peter stands up and he tells them they're putting a yoke of bondage on the neck of the disciples that neither the fathers nor they are able to bear. And then he says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. I love that because it's the first we believe statement that we find in the book of Acts, that we find in the scriptures. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. We have a granite monument That was erected in the 1950s in our churchyard, and it contains our articles of faith. We believe, one after another, 13 articles of faith. We believe this. We believe that. What does Peter say we believe? We believe that by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, not through the keeping of the law. And so there are many different things that can cause trouble in a church. You read so many Foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. These are unprofitable. They don't do anyone any good. There's no payout in your investment. All it's going to do is cause trouble. They're unprofitable and they are vain. There is no use for it. We ought to be at all times as concerned as we can about not being offensive to those in our local church body. Now, offensive, what does that mean? Does it mean that if somebody's out getting into trouble, that I ought to just go along with that and be okay with that? No, we hold each other accountable, but we ought to be very careful, very careful in the way that we talk to each other and the things that we say to each other so as not to cause offense. You know, the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 18 that it's better for me to have a millstone hung about my neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend one of God's little ones, one of his children. Does that sound very pleasant to have a millstone hung about your neck and dropped into the ocean? And yet that's better than what can happen if I offend one of God's little ones. Be very, very careful the way that we talk to one another. It's an inevitability Offenses must needs come. And what that means is, Matthew 18 again, we are all sinners. We live in a broken world. Sometimes we're going to snap at each other. And when that happens, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And then, all right, I forgive you. And we go about as if nothing happened because we love each other in Christ. And the peace of the church among God's people is so important that we forgive a brother 70 times 7. And we do all we can to reconcile once we realize we've done wrong. I'm going to talk about myself here for a minute and give you a story of when, when I did wrong. And Brother Hewlin called me about 8.30 in the morning a few years ago. And it was before a big meeting and someone in another church, before the association, had an idea of how something ought to be done that we'd already decided in previous years how to do. And I'm like, that's not how we do it. And I, I kind of went on a tirade for a minute. That's not how we need to do this. We already have a protocol for this. Why are we just going to go mess things up and add more business when we don't need any more business? And I kind of got grumpy about it. And that may be hard to believe that I get grumpy about something. Well, I hung up the phone and Rachel's like, were you fussing at him? I'm like, no, did it sound like I was? It sounded like you were. So I call him right back. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm not fussing at you. Uh... 
forgive me, I was gruff because of what we were talking about, but I realized it sounded like I was fussing at you, and God forbid I fuss at you. My dear brother, I am sorry. And we went about our business, and he might not even remember that. But I remembered that. It's easy to be gruff with the way that we talk. We've always got to be careful not to be contentious and not to strive. Paul focuses on one particular individual here, the heretic. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. I have a few things to say about that. To be very clear, Jesus himself came to bring a sword. What does the sword do? It cuts. It divides asunder. Even Jesus came to bring a sword. And I believe in the book of Matthew chapter 10, he says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. And he begins talking about the various types of division that can occur through preaching where a family could be divided because one person believes the gospel and the other people in the family don't believe the gospel and it brings division and that division is proper because we are to follow Christ and obey Christ, not men. But that's different. That's persecution. That's the world hating you because the world hates Christ. The heretic is a man who comes into the church and he divides the church through the things that he teaches, the things that he does, the things that he believes and he shares. Christianity today is full of division. And that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking for me to look at millions upon millions of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ that find little unity in what they believe about Christ and how they practice. Mark my word, God is not pleased with division within His churches. Some greater, some lesser. Sometimes divisions occur over a matter of opinion, both parties doing the very best that they can do. And we confess that. There are times when there are just two opinions, people have different ways of thinking, they see things two different ways, and in those cases, if it's not in an essential doctrine, then we simply, as it were, agree to disagree. There are areas where we can have no disagreement. Other times, rather than simply being a matter of opinion, there are actual wolves in sheep's clothing at play in the world. Jesus warned against the wolf in sheep's clothing in the Sermon on the Mount. There are people that appear to be wolves on the outside, but inside they are ravenous wolves. Not just wolves, but ravenous wolves, hungry wolves. Wolves that devour and eat the prey of the Lord's sheep, their prey. They prey on God's sheep. Sometimes heretics are outright wolves. There are certain who creep in unaware, ordained of old, to condemnation, according to Jude. Sometimes a man might become heretical when he lets his flesh get in the way and he becomes divisive and you rebuke him and eventually, after admonishing him and withdrawing fellowship from him, he repents and he returns and he's restored. This is a very broad subject. Now, Concerning the wolf, does this mean, and there are some Christians who think that every person who has ever been heretical is some sort of a godless reprobate, unregenerate, bound for hell. Notice that Paul even gives a heretic two admonishments. If we're dealing with unregenerates here all the time, would he give him two? I think if Paul had under consideration the wolf in sheep's clothing, it would be you take a stick and you drive him out of the premises. You get him out as quickly as you can. So that tells me that sometimes a child of God can be heretical in the sense that they're divisive. 
But in church history, so many times the greater heretics are people who were probably just outright wolves. Some of the Gnostics in the days of John the Apostle's later years, early in the second century, the Gnostics denied that Jesus had a physical body. They denied his deity. They claimed that he was a lesser God who had been sent to teach us from the greater God and that all physical was evil, all spiritual was good. And that through denying the physical, we could achieve enlightenment to go and be with that greater deity. And those men were antichrists, according to John. That's a strong term. They were heretics. Some heretics are outright antichrists. Occasionally, you have someone who has H-word syndrome and... You could perhaps write a comical song about this. Everyone who disagrees with me is a heretic. Now, everyone who disagrees with me is not a heretic. I don't use that term lightly, personally. It's a term that's to be reserved for serious troublemakers. Not if someone holds a different opinion than you have on the day of the crucifixion, or if Jesus sweat as blood or sweat blood, or half a dozen other issues that we like to major on that are minors. Jesus confronted that when he rebuked the Pharisees that swallow a camel and strain at gnats. I'm not going to go around calling people heretics because we're disagreeing on gnats. Gnats are very small. Camels are very large. These people in Jesus' day would swallow a camel and strain at gnats. I'm not going to strain at gnats. We reserve this term. Just because someone disagrees with me on an issue doesn't mean they're a heretic. You look back through history, before controversy, you often had less precision because controversy breeds precision. There are perspectives that some of our forefathers had on a number of issues that we're not comfortable with today. When I read their writings, I don't begin screaming heretic and run out of the room because we're not the sons of heretics. We descended from those people. And if they were heretics, what does that say about our organization? You just cut yourself off from history. We're no different than Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, think about it. Take that thought to conclusion. So I use that word heretic very, very cautiously. Very carefully. A few years ago, I was talking with a preacher, and some, some preacher that's known for throwing unusual grenades, and it's just the way that he is, had said something in a sermon that really annoyed this guy, and this preacher was my age. Did you hear that Elder so-and-so is a heretic now? I said, really? That's news to me. He was a well-respected elder. What did he do? Well, he said this and this in a sermon. Well, that's not necessarily outside of biblical orthodoxy. What makes him a heretic? I guess because he disagreed with that guy, he was a heretic. Again, everybody that disagrees with me is a heretic. That's not the way that it is. We ought to be very cautious about using the word. What do we mean when we say heresy? A heretic is one who commits heresy. The word heresy is a transliteration of the Greek word that sounds nearly identical to it when spoken, but it simply means a division or a schism. Paul talks a lot about schisms to the church at Corinth, and we'll reflect on a few of those passages momentarily. When we say heresy, we mean division. Now, this is interesting. The root of that word in Greek... It actually comes from two words. One of those words means to take captive and is used in ancient secular writings for when one would storm a city. So let that frame our thought on heresy. The word they use is a word for storming a city. What happens when someone storms a city? That never happens to us. I don't think that any of us have ever been in downtown Huntsville and heard a commotion three blocks away and wondered if the Philistines were descending upon us. In that day, you have walled cities, you have watchmen upon the walls, they have trumpets, they blow the trumpets. They weren't used for music, they were used for an alert system, like our tornado sirens. 
the trumpets blast and you know the enemy is near. They're going to throw ladders up on the wall. Looks like a scene from Lord of the Rings. You got people climbing over walls, shooting arrows, throwing spears, people doing combat one with another. The Greek word that's the root for this, one of the two words, is the word for storming a city. What happens when true heretics come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? They storm the city. They storm the city. Another word that it comes from is a simple word for opinion. Now, I try to be cautious on making implications with word history, but you just put those two concepts together. Opinions that storm the city. Division. When the Lord's churches are divided through opinions that are not biblical. This original word in Greek also, the actual word, translates more times as the word sect than it translates into the word heresy. So when you hear about the sect of the Pharisees, the sect of the Sadducees, Christianity was called a sect. Paul said that the Pharisees considered his views as heresy. It was a sect. We use that word today to refer to an oddball faction Many times, even a heretical faction within Christianity, a sect. The word that translates heresy also translates sect. By the way, just to remind you again, faction displeases Christ in the church. And so heresies or factions within the church is displeasing to Christ. Heresies as in noun, as in a doctrine, is a doctrine that creates factions or sects. In the church, we are not to faction off in the church. I want to use Corinth as an example of this before moving on to the positive because we want to focus on the positive today. This is a negative example. It's a very scary thing. Sometimes people in America want to hear about the 10 steps for being happier in the next seven days when they come to church on Sunday. Paul mentions false teaching and division and danger in that in every single writing that he writes. Jesus mentioned it countless times in sermons. Paul mentions it when he preaches to churches in his recorded sermons in the book of Acts. It is a common theme. The church is to be warned against the dangers of heresies and even factions among good brethren. Let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians just momentarily to look at a few of these examples. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find an occurrence of this word. First Corinthians 11 is talking about communion and the misuse of communion in the church at Corinth. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, verse 18, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're misusing the Lord's Supper. In eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. In other words, when they came together to have communion, the prominent church members got it first, and they got more, and maybe the other members of the church didn't get any at all, and they had turned it into a drunken feast reserved for the elite. And Paul says in the next verse, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? That's not what communion is about. They had heresies. They had divisions when they came together to take communion. Factions. They were factioning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 11, it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you that saith, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Why? Lest any should say I baptized in my own name. There were factions in Corinth, not only in communion. There were factions in Corinth because 
Everyone had divided themselves up, warring with the other ones over which preacher was their favorite. Primitive Baptists never do that, do they? Certainly we have, and certainly we do. In chapter 3, Paul says, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither are ye now able. Ye are yet carnal, for where, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? While one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? Their heresies, their divisions were over all kinds of issues. Understand, any division, and I don't mean when two people have a disagreement and they work it out. I mean division. Any division is heresy. And heresy is condemned over and over. It displeases Christ. Conversely, in 1 Corinthians 1.10... Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So rather than being divided, Paul exhorts them to be perfectly joined together with the same mind, with no division, speaking the same things, in the same mind and in the same judgment. He would tell us in Ephesians that we have been given the ministry to teach the Word for the ultimate sake of our unity in Christ. Christ is not divided, therefore His churches should not be divided. So what do you do with that fellow? Second half of verse 10 of Titus 3, after the first and second admonition you reject. He's to be ejected from the church if he persists in being divisive. You say, that sounds mean. If you go about doing that, people aren't going to want to come to your church. Do you know that in church history, when the church practiced church discipline the right way, while also being very evangelistic, the church grew far more than it practiced church discipline and excluded people? Sometimes I wonder if we would recognize biblical Christianity in our day and age if it came up and smacked us in the face. Read about John Leland. 2% of his church got excluded every year. 2%. And it was growing by leaps and bounds. Why? Because they were trying to be biblical about everything. If a man is actually a heretic, his feelings are the last thing that matter. The church is more important. Paul would remark in 2 Timothy about delivering such unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that they might learn not to blaspheme. They'd overthrown the faith of some. He continues in verse 11, Knowing that he is such, he that is such, is subverted. That word subverted is interesting. It means inverted, upside down, or corrupted. He's inside out, upside down, perverted and corrupted. Perverted not in a modern sense, but in the sense of to dilute or to give impurities to. The man that does this doesn't realize it so many times, but he is upside down and inside out, being condemned of himself. There's condemnation in this. But here we have what you might call a few good men. Verse 12. And I'm going to present this to us all today with the thought, which one of these two types do we want to be? First of all, he says, when I shall send Artemis unto thee. Paul always ends his epistles with references to faithful brothers that he knows. Men that he sends to them. Men that they have sent to him. People in the church there that he loves and that, he's, that he misses. Paul knew so many people. As a minister that spent a good bit of my life over the last nearly two decades, I guess 17 years of trying to preach the gospel. That's a long time. I hope to do another 40, maybe. I can tell you people from coast to coast that I have met, that I love. 
One of the saddest things for me is to go visit an area that I love to visit, perhaps that I visit annually, and every time I go, there's one more brother or sister in Christ who's gone on to be with the Lord, and there's a giant void in their absence. I could, I could name you men and women, one name after another of people that I love around this country who've gone on to be with the Lord, and I miss them every time I go there. I can tell you lists of good, faithful men and women. Paul does that. Every church he writes to, he references them, he commends them, he talks about them. Imagine being a person so faithful in the first century church that God saw fit to inspire that your name be recorded in the Holy Writ as a faithful man. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, this is the only occurrence of his name in Scripture, or Tychicus. That's an unusual name. It does not roll off the tongue. Tychicus. Tychicus is referenced five times in Scripture. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. Paul would mention him in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Notice this reference. That ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord shall make known to you all things. In other words, Paul says, I'm sending Tychicus so he can tell you how I'm doing. Tychicus is a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. Contrasted with the hypothetical, proverbial, stereotypical heretic is a man like Tychicus who's faithful. Paul mentions him Colossians 4.7. In 2 Timothy 4.12, and here in Titus chapter 3. Be diligent to come unto me to Nicapolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer. Zenos is another one that's mentioned only here. That expression, the lawyer, is an interesting one. Perhaps a lawyer in the law, or perhaps he practiced law. Sometimes that term was used for either. But listen to this next name. And Apollos... On their journey. Now, if you were paying attention in 1 Corinthians, you know that one of the men that the Corinthians so adored that they factioned after Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. Cephas is Peter. You can imagine them saying, I like Paul. He's that brilliant theologian. They might say, I like Cephas. He's rough around the edges and he was there the whole time. They might say, I like Apollos. What's so interesting about Apollos, he was a man who was eloquent in the Scriptures, and he mightily convinced those that heard him. We find him converted, in a sense, to following Christ in the book of Acts. He knew only the baptism of John. He was a disciple. He was not an unregenerate. He was out preaching what he knew of the gospel, that Christ should come, knowing only the baptism of John. A man and his wife tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla. There's another two faithful ones that you could study out and emulate in your life. You husbands and wives, you could be an Aquila and a Priscilla here at Flint River. Aquila and Priscilla hear Apollos and they say, you know, this is a good man. He's got zeal. He's eloquent. He knows the scriptures. Let's expound unto him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And they do that. He's then a follower of Christ in the church and he goes on immediately to preach the gospel. He serves in the city of Corinth for a while. He's mentioned ten times in the New Testament, Apollos. He was such a famous preacher in the first century. You know that the book of Hebrews is not signed by its author. And so most of us believe it was written by Paul throughout church history. In fact, my Bible says the epistle of Paul the apostle to the Hebrews. That's not original to the letter, that's a subheading the publisher put in it. But of those that had the minority opinions that Hebrews was written by someone else, there's all kinds of opinions. It was written by Paul in Hebrew, translated by Luke into Greek. So many different opinions. Barnabas, one of the opinions is that it was written by Apollos. I believe it was written by Paul. But he's so famous that people even have believed that perhaps he wrote the book of Hebrews. Would to God that we had more Apollos in our day and age. Even more and lastly, all them that are with me salute thee. 
Imagine if this church gathered together and I wrote a letter to someone and, you know, there was no FaceTime, there was no email, there was no text, there was no phone call. You send a letter across great geography. You gather together to read the letter that I had written to a faithful brother in Christ that you all knew and loved. You'd probably want to read the letter before I sent it. Paul says, all that are with me, all that are with me, salute you, Titus. We all love you, Titus. We pray for you, Titus. Greet them that love us in the faith. Tell everyone that's there with you, Titus, that we love them. Can you see that contrasted so vividly with the heretical people in the previous verses? You know, when Titus was given the qualifications of the minister, all the way back in chapter 1 where we began this series, I want you to just notice chapter 1 and verse 8. A bishop must be a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men. Rather than a heretic, I want to be a good man, and I want to be a lover of good men. Which of those two types do we want to be? We want to be the latter of those two types of men. As we bring our series to Titus to a close, we sure have learned a lot. I hope that it's been instructive to you. We've learned about preachers, their qualifications, their work. We've learned about discipleship and Christian maturity for all people in the church in all areas of discipleship. We've learned that salvation that's purely by God's grace is the root of everything that we do as disciples. We've learned the dangers of false teachers, and we've learned the virtue of peace and unity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that last point is one that I think right now in human history we need to focus on more than perhaps any other thought. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book of Titus. We thank you, Lord, for inspiring it and giving it to us. We pray, Lord, that it was instructive as we've expounded upon it. We pray, Lord, that what we said was right and true. We pray that we bow our knees before you, that we submit to thus saith the word of the Lord, that we avoid foolish and unlearned questions. We pray, Father, that none of us would ever become heretical in the way that we deal with one another in the church, that we would never have factions here as a church. We pray, Father, that we would be like those faithful men, like Artemis, like Tychicus, like Zenos, like Apollos, like all the faithful men that were with Paul, all the faithful men with Titus, Paul and Titus themselves being faithful. We pray, Lord, that we would be like those men, good men, lovers of good men, given to hospitality. Father, we pray that you would revive pure religion and undefiled in our country. We know that we're not of this world, but we do live in it. And so we pray for the good of our city. We pray for the good of our land. But Lord, we pray that you would cause great revival in your church, that it really would be a kingdom that is not of this world where we come into to escape all the things of this world. Help us to be who we're called to be. By your grace, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.